me, you've you taught other Bible studies. I'm okay with that. Let me tell you, I've learned in my life why make things hard, harder than you have to. And so I have decided that if somebody has gone to all the trouble to make an apostolic Holy Ghost filled teaching mechanism that allows me to teach a someone and disciple someone, why not use it? You don't have to reinvent the wheel when you want to give somebody a Bible study. And so we're choosing to highlight Exploring God's Word. If you still need a copy of it, a binder, uh, you can see me or Sister Rache, and she can get you, and or I can get you a copy. But we want you to make sure you have a copy because I am asking, I'm praying, and I'm believing that next year every family in our church would be able to teach a home Bible study uh, through 2018. Let's get right into it. This is the seventh lesson. Last week we dove into the uh, New Testament and it was a lot of information that we had to give kind of quickly. But let's slow it down a little bit. First off, the Gospels contains the, the story of God here on earth. The incarnation that we're going to celebrate in just a few short weeks and all of the, 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 the beauty of that nativity, it was all for one purpose, and that is so that you and I could be saved from our sin. I'm, I'm again, not, not trying to pat myself on the back by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just trying to, to teach, and I, I believe that it's important for you to know that I practice what I preach. But in, in Bible reading, I've told you that, that over the last couple of months, I've done a little different in my devotional Bible reading. I read a chapter a day from the book of Proverbs. And when I get done, I start Proverbs over. I do a chapter a day in the Gospels. And once I get through the last chapter of John, I'll start back with the first chapter of Matthew. I read a chapter a day in the book of Acts because that is the story of the church and how it started. When that is done, every 29 days, I'm starting back in the book of Acts. And then I read a chapter in the, the rest of the Old Testament, what we call the epistles. And when I get through from, from Romans, when I get all the way through Revelation, I'll start back on Romans. Well, right now I'm in the book of Galatians. And, and you don't have to... to, to have a, a doctorate to read the book of Galatians and realize the importance of Jesus here on earth and how it, 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 it fulfilled the law. We're no longer living under the law. We're free from that. We have a salvation of our soul. We're blessed because of that. But Jesus came to earth, and, and let, me, let me start, and we're going to start here. Jesus teaches the new birth. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we're not going to, you'll see it, but I doubt you can read it up on the screen. Uh, of course, when you're sitting across from a table, it's a lot easier to see these uh, charts. But if you would read with me in the book of John chapter 3, and that is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Particularly, the fifth verse says this, that Jesus answered. He answered John the Baptist, and this is what he said. Verily, verily. Now, I should do my homework a little bit better and tell you exactly what verily, verily means. But let me tell you what it means to Brandon. It means listen very carefully. I'm about to say something that is profound. What, is a, what happens after the verily, verily is going to change your life. He said, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So when I am teaching this Bible study, 
the question that you've got to ask right there before you do anything else is, Brother Darren, if you are not born of the water, can you go to heaven? Brother Kenny, if you're not born of the Spirit, can you go to heaven? No. Ask that question. Put the ball in their court. This is what the Bible says. It's red letters. It's Jesus speaking. Except a man or woman be born of the water and of the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you that I want to go to heaven? And I don't know anybody that has looked me in the eye, and I know there's some out there, but I've never had anybody look me in the eye and say, I don't want to go to heaven. Now, they may not believe in heaven, and that's okay. That's a whole other story. But I've never had anybody look at me and say, I don't want to go to heaven. And so if that's the case, then how are we going to make it? The story that Jesus gives Nicodemus is a powerful one. Jesus, in his ministry, had different reactions. The common people received and heard him gladly for the most part. He came, Luke chapter 4, 18, he came to preach the gospel to the poor, but the learned people didn't always receive him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were constantly opposing Jesus, and they, they opposed Jesus so much that they got mad when Jesus performed miracles. They got mad when Jesus opened blinded eyes. They got mad when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. That's how, how far out they got. But there was one Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night most likely because he didn't want anybody to see what he was doing. A little bit of fear and trepidation knowing that, that he was going against the Pharisees and going against his, his friends and those that he knew. But he came to Jesus and he said, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except that God be with him. It's a profound statement. This, this Nicodemus was at least acknowledging the goodness of Jesus. He was not acknowledging the divinity yet. He was not acknowledging the oneness of God in a sense that, that, that Jesus is God. He hadn't got that far yet. He was just saying, I know that you are of God. Well, rather than Jesus patting him on the back and say, man, thank you for saying that, Jesus just looks him in the eye and maybe in my own imagination, he pokes his finger in his chest and he says, except a man be born of the water, or, or I'm sorry, he first said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as far as I know, Nicodemus didn't come to ask a question. But God knew where Nicodemus was. And he said that. Nicodemus didn't understand it. Nicodemus, he knew the miracles that were happening. But very quickly, the focus of the conversation slipped away from the miracles because at the end of the day, although the man with the withered hand was probably very excited that his hand worked, and the blind could now see, and the deaf could now hear, although those miracles are powerful, it is still appointed unto man once to die. Even the widow of Nain's son that Jesus raised to life, and that is an incredible miracle. But even then, the understanding is, man, you're going to die again. Lazarus, I'm glad Jesus walked to that grave and said, Lazarus, come forth. But you know what? You're going to die again. And when that happens, all the miracles on the earth is not going to matter if your soul isn't saved. 
That's why it's important that we don't get focused on the miracles of Jesus and want the, 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 the right now feeling. I need an eternal change in my life. So Jesus began to focus on that. He brought the center of conversation to the most important thing in the world. Where are you going when you die? Jesus said the only way that you can enter into that kingdom is to be born again. And that terminology in Nicodemus was very strange. Even though he was a ruler of the Jews, even though he was a Pharisee and a teacher, he had never heard of being born again. And so in his mind, he did the only thing he knew to do, and that was to equate it with a natural birth. He wasn't trying to be crude, but he said, how in the world can I do that? How can I be born again when I'm old? Do I enter back into my mother's womb and come back out? No, I don't understand. Jesus replied to that and he said, well, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That new birth right there is, is contingent on two things happening. Baptism of the water and the baptism of the Spirit. That water refers to water baptism. The Spirit refers to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And the way you know this is because Jesus goes on later and he's in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And I, I preach this. I love the analogy and the typology that we see. But during this feast, uh, on, on, on consecutive days, there would be a great uh, uh, procession they would go and they would dip water out of the pool that they said was where the water flowed when Moses struck the rock. And they would, they would grab that water and they would have this great parade and they would come and they would go to the temple and they would pour that water out uh, there at the temple. And, and it was a great thing. And they would watch that day in and day out. Finally, when the last day had come, Jesus is sitting there watching and on the last day of the great feast as he sees that pitcher coming by and those, those, those priests and, and all of the worshipers he stands up and he makes this statement this is John chapter 7 around verse 37 he says if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink for he that believeth on me as the scripture have said out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water now that may make not make a lot of sense. We love to sing that song and I enjoy singing it, but I've sung that song and watched people in the audience, their eyebrows raised, you know, how is water going to flow out of your belly? But then it's very simple. Jesus goes on to say, Jesus was talking about the Spirit which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet giving because Jesus was not yet glorified. John chapter 7 uh, tells us very quickly that the Holy Ghost was going to come. And when it comes, it was going to be like a river flowing. Let's, let's look at some of those promises, some of those facts about this statement. Number one, the Bible says if any man, remember man doesn't mean male gender, it, it's just the way they talk, but it means any person. Can I just tell you right now that any person has the promise of receiving the Holy Ghost. Not just the Jews, not just the rich, not just the ones that know everything, but it goes all the way back to Abraham. Anyone that comes from Abraham is able to be saved. All people. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Not only is that, the qualifying factor is that that person must thirst. 
there has to be an element of faith and an element of desire. If you don't want it, I promise you God's not going to give it to you. I have never met a person that's received the Holy Ghost that did not want the Holy Ghost. But I, I have never seen a person that desired it that didn't receive it. The, second, the third thing is, is that the person that wants this promise of the Holy Ghost must come to Jesus. And then the person, this is the fourth one, the person that receives the promise must believe on Jesus. It's not enough just to want it. It's not enough just to come to where Jesus is. You have to believe on Jesus. And if you do, the rivers of living water will flow out of that believer and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost had not yet been given when Jesus made this because Jesus was not yet glorified. But when, after, the, after the, uh, the death and the burial and the resurrection and after Jesus ascended back to heaven, then you have the day of Pentecost when it was fully come. And that Holy Ghost is here for whosoever will let him come. Peter Cartwright was a, a famous circuit writer, and at one point he opposed President Lincoln and his election to Congress. And uh, he, had, he had stayed overnight with a physician, a skeptic, who claimed that the only way you could know if something was real was to see what your five senses could discern. And this just for you, this story is in here, so you don't have to remember it. It's, it's right here. But the physician had asked Peter Cartwright, who was a preacher, he had said, have you ever seen religion? Peter said, no. Have you ever heard religion? You could also put in Jesus or God. No. Have you ever smelled religion? Have you ever smelled God? Have you ever smelled? No. Have you ever tasted it? No. Have you ever felt it? Well, yes. The doctor smiled and he said, yeah, yeah, but see, I've proved beyond a doubt that by four respectable witnesses that you cannot see, hear, smell, or taste religion and yet you only have that lone, solitary witness of feeling and so because of that, the evidence is overwhelming. It must not exist. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Or, or you can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it. You're saying you can feel it. Cartwright simply looked at him and said, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen pain? No. Have you ever heard pain? No. Have you ever smelled pain? No. Have you ever tasted pain? No. Have you ever felt pain? Why, yes. Preacher Cartwright said, because of your own abilities and your own kind of way you're doing that, then those witnesses would tell you that pain isn't real either. The story is told that that man, Cartwright, fell on his knees and he began to pray. And he began to pray for that doctor. The and and the, 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 it goes on to say that, not the Bible, but other stories, goes on to say that in a short time, that man's heart was broken and he began to repent with a shout of triumph. And he repented so much that he freed his own slaves, sent them back to their countries that they had came from, and that doctor became a preacher. He had heard the word. It is key that when we uh, get to, to teaching and preaching, that if we'll just tell somebody, if they're hungry, they will receive it. Now what I just told you was a story. And Jesus loved to use stories like that. We call them parables. A, a parable is a, a story that has a spiritual application. Let's look at three of them. Now there's a lot of them that he did, but three of them. 
the parable of the sower, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the talents. The parable of the sower is found in Matthew chapter 13, and, and it gives, it's awesome because it gives you the parable, and if you keep going, it will tell you exactly what the parable means. That a, a farmer goes out and he sows seed. Sowing. He had a bag, had seed in it. He'd pick up handfuls of seed and toss it out onto the field. But some of it fell on the, 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 the road, that, that hardened place. Some of it fell in amongst the, the stony soil, soil that wasn't greatly prepared. Others fell on thorny ground and, and others fell on good ground. And so later on they asked, what does this mean? The disciples did and Jesus says, well, the seed is the word of God. It's the responsibility that we sow the seed. We give that seed out as much as we can. Some of that seed is going to fall on the packed dirt of a road. That seed is not going to germinate. That seed is just going to sit there. The birds are going to come eat it. It's seed that never even took root. And I've preached a long enough time to know there's a lot of times that the word of God has gone forth. And nobody, or, or not nobody, but somebody did not receive it. It never even had a chance. It just kind of bounced off of them in one ear, out the other. It was just laying there on the road. It's like trying to plant grass on the asphalt. But there's been other times that that seed fell upon soil that was not perfect. And, and, and it, it, it grew. It had rocks in the soil. And the Bible says that's the ones that heard the word and joyfully received it for a moment. But when temptation came, they fall, fell away because they were not grounded or rooted in the word. It was seed that fell on soil and it began to grow a little bit. But it had no depth to it. It's like grass that grows in the crack of a, of a sidewalk. It's like grass that grows on a gravel parking lot or in, in bad dirt. It might grow. It might even look good. But you can pull it up very easily. It's, it's, it's not going to uh, last. And I've seen people like that. They hear the word. They make a quick decision. They may even get baptized. But you never see them again. Because they never got rooted. And then you have the thorny soil. It was those that heard the word and even began to bear fruit. But they allowed the thorns to grow up. The cares and the pleasures of life. And it choked out their concern for the word of God. The thorns grew faster than the wheat. I see that all too often. Someone that has been rooted and grounded in the word of God. They are living a life that is producing fruit. But if you're not careful those thorns will grow faster choke the life but there is the good ground those that hear the word those that understand the word and those that obey the word it's the importance of the word of God the word of God is the only thing that we have that can cause a person to, to, to desire to change their life and to bear fruit and to be produ productive in God's kingdom there's no substitute to God's word the second parable, and, and I'm going to show you how these three parables work together in just a minute. The second is the pearl of great price, Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price that when a merchant man sees it, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy that one pearl. Now we don't have an a interpretation of this parable, but I think it's pretty clear that all of life is simply searching for something that we need. There's a lot of pearls out there. The Bible says in fact that it was like a merchant man who was seeking goodly pearls that when he found the one pearl 
the most valuable thing that you can gain in this life is the salvation of your soul by the word of God. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 23, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom, instruction, and understanding. No matter what the cost, you need to buy the truth. No matter what the cost, you need to hold fast to the word of God. And as long as you teach and preach and follow the word of God, you will not be shaken. It's impossible because the word of God is that. And then the third one that we're focusing on today is that of the talents. It's what God gives us and how we use it. The man who had traveled to a far country represents the Lord, but before he leaves to go, he looks at his servants and he distributes his money. He gave five talents to one, and that's a form of money. He gave two to another and one to another, and he said, I need you to take care of this and and make a profit. When he comes back, the one who had five talents invested it, paid good dividends, and it brought a, a good return. The one who had two talents, he had invested it. It didn't bring as much as the one that had five, but it brought a good return. But the one who had one was too fearful to take any risk, so he just hid it in the ground. And he was able to give the master back what the master had given him, but nothing else. It's very interesting. Although that sounds good, he didn't lose it. But the words of God are telling. The Bible says that the Lord looked at, Ma- at him in Matthew chapter 25 and he says, you are wicked and slothful. That tells me God expects something from us. Let me tell you how those three fit together. In the parable of the sower, you've got to get the word. You've got to receive it. Don't, don't let your heart be so hardened that the word bounces off. Don't let your heart be so full of rocky places that it doesn't grow. Get the word. The second, the parable, the great price, once you get that word, don't ever let it go. If you've got to sell everything out for that one word, keep it. But the third thing is you need to use the word. Now, while that might not make a lot of sense to the one sitting across the table that you're teaching at this moment, I hope it makes sense to you and I today. That if God has saw fit to fill you with his spirit, he is desiring that you would do something with that. And I would hate to get to heaven. And and he say, what did you do with what I gave you, Brother Kozart? And you say, well, I'm here, ain't I? And he says, sorry, slothful. Sorry, wicked. I want to get to heaven and say, Lord, I took a risk sometimes. But hopefully it paid dividends as I begin to teach. Jesus, though, was not here only to teach. He was here for a purpose. That last week of Jesus' life, there were prophecies fulfilled, and, and, and we don't have time to go through each one of them. We, we spent last week sort of going over it, but prophecies fulfilled such as the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. When Jesus is coming in, that week before he is, he's crucified. He comes in and he says I, I, to some of his disciples, let me just throw my glasses, that works. He, he said, uh, uh, I want you to go there. You're going to find a, 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 a mare there, a donkey, and he's going to have a colt. I want you to get them. If anybody asks why you're stealing them, just say my master has need of them. So they walk in and sure enough, there it is. They take it, they get in. But even that, simple thing tells us it's a prophetic statement that the Bible says the Lord would come on a colt 
in, in, a, in a prophecy in the Old Testament, and it is fulfilled. They placed olive trees or branches rather on the ground. They put their garments in the path of that donkey coming. A great crowd began to glorify him. Hosanna, Hosanna. The problem is that worship would change in just a few short days. The same inhabitants of that city that cried Hosanna to the son of David would be screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Next event before the crucifixion, we call it the Last Supper. They would go there. It was the feast of Passover. All of the Jews were doing it, but this was going to be different. It was something new because as they gathered there in that upper room, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. He took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink, for this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. We call it the Lord's Supper. On... Uh, the try and remember what day it is. I'm getting my on the the seventh, January the seventh, that Sunday night coming up. We'll celebrate communion. It's always an incredible time. We do it every year at the first of January, and um, it, it's it's that symbolicness, the Lord's Supper, because it's the bread that represents His body. It's the fruit of the vine that symbolized His blood. And he was just simply preparing them for a sacrifice that was going to happen. They leave that, that upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Eight of them are, are, are told to wait kind of at the entrance of it. And he takes Peter and James and John a little, fall, a little further in the garden. And he says to those three, would you wait an hour? Would you stay with me an hour and pray? Of course, you know, they go to sleep and they can't. He tries to wake them up and they don't. But you have that incredible prayer as the humanity of Jesus cries, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy will. It was the humanity knowing what was about to take place that a sacrifice needed to be made. That once and for all blood was going to be shed and an innocent life was going to be killed that would free all of humanity. After he prayed and he woke them up, he said, there's someone coming to betray us. And Judas walks down, plants that kiss on Jesus' cheek, and they go. The, the trial goes to Caiaphas, the high priest. They go to, to, to uh, Pilate, and, and then from Pilate, they, they go to, to uh, uh, my brain is stopping. I turn my page. They go uh, around, I'm sorry, my, I got all messed up. Goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders are gathered. And uh, when you read this, it's kind of interesting as you, as you see the pains that they went to to try to convict Jesus. They got false witnesses gathered, and yet none of those false witnesses could get their story straight. It didn't work. As far as the high priest was concerned, Jesus had sealed his faith. He, he wanted to just kill him, but the Jews didn't have that ability. Part of the, the way the Romans ruled is the Jews could not give somebody uh, uh, the, the death penalty. And so from there he goes and they, they take him. And, and there they go to uh, Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor over Judea. He's responsible to carry out the death penalty. Herod is a part of this as well. All of it is going. Nobody can find any fault, it seems, in him. 
Finally, Pilate says, I know what I'll do. I'll release the worst criminal I can release, Barabbas. He's just, I mean, you think of the worst criminal you can find. I'll release Barabbas and, and, and or I'll release Jesus. Pilate thought he had it set, but they said, we'd rather release Barabbas than to release Jesus. So they do. Jesus has, or Pilate has Jesus whipped. But it's very interesting that even though this was a, a, a sham court, even though they were kind of making it up as they went along, it was still the very actions that they did were fulfilling prophecies in the years uh, past. Isaiah saying he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Many years later, Peter would write in one of his epistles, Peter would say, who, he, who, who his own self bore our sin, and by whose stripes you are healed. That total redemption from not only sin, but even sickness. For the psalmist said in Psalms 103, that he forgiveth all thine iniquities, and he healeth all of our diseases. It was not a partial price that Jesus paid on that cross. But it was a complete price, one and for all. Oh, he was mocked by the soldiers. They stripped him bare. They placed a scarlet robe on his bleeding back. They put a crown of thorns and they mocked him. They beat him with reeds. They beat him with sticks. They spit on him. They began to lead him down that road to uh, Calvary. They made a man help by the name of Simon to carry it. They put him on the cross. They hung a sign saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They parted his garments and, and, and rolled the dice for it. They mocked him on the cross. Some said he saved others, but he can't save himself. But the problem is, if he'd have got off that cross, he wouldn't have saved others. One of those criminals crucified next to him was railing against him, cussing him. If you're the Christ, save yourself. But the other thief rebuked him and saying, don't you fear God? said, we, are, we, we have to go through what we're going through. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. And that thief looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus looked at him and said, verily I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. What a statement of, of forgiveness. To forgive the one that's hanging next to him, but also in almost the same voice, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be able to forgive the ones that had pounded the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet. The one that was going to eventually stick a spear in his side, say, forgive them. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. An earthquakes, rocks were ripped apart. The graveyard, graves were open. There was a Roman centurion that was so frightful when he saw all of this. He says, truly, this is the Son of God. All of that prophetic. And they bury him in a rich man's tomb by the name of Joseph Arathema. They, Nicodemus even helps Joseph as they wrap him up and they put him there. But what looked like it was going to be the end was simply the beginning of an incredible thing. I know for you and I, this is common knowledge. Some of you say, man, I've heard the, 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 the 
Easter story so many times. I don't know why you're giving this again. Can I tell you that we're living in a day and age that there's a lot of people that don't really know it? They know it about as good as they know the Christmas story. And for them, all they know about the Christmas story is Jesus was born, but they have no knowledge of that. I remember when the, the movie, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. And, and those of you that remember, they, they, it, it was pretty uh, amazing when it first came out. It was, I don't know other than maybe going way back to the Ten Commandments or perhaps the robe uh, way back, I believe, in the 50s. There had never been a, a truly semi-biblical movie that had graced the big screens. And I, we were in Toledo, Ohio during that time. And, and while it was happening, you know, I was hearing news reports. I mean, they were, they were talking about how people were falling out and almost having heart attacks as they watched the, what was happening to Jesus. They talked about people sobbing and just wailing uh, in, the, in the movie theaters and all of that. But later on, I, I, we, we, us and a, another family, we, we watched that, that movie uh, there, you know, when it came out on video and we watched it. And I remember thinking... Why am I not moved? I've heard all these stories of everybody else falling out in the movie theater and crying. And, and I watched it and, I, and then I realized I have heard this since I was a little kid. Sometimes you get a little numb to it. But can I tell you that that Easter story ought not numb us? Every time I start talking about it, I start realizing what he did for me. And the fact that he's not in that tomb any longer. That death couldn't hold him. That corruption couldn't hold him. That all of that was, was lost because three days later, even though they had put a watch on his grave, even though there were soldiers that were guarding it day in and day out, nothing could happen because when Jesus arose, it blew open that tomb and out from that tomb came the risen Savior and he was ready. He had done uh, taken the keys to death, hell, and the grave and that, that what we find out later in the epistles, death, where is your sting grave? Where is your victory? He had freed it. The tomb was empty. Later on, you'll find, recording the facts of the resurrection, that Paul stated that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. He was seen first of Peter, then of the twelve. Then he was seen of about 500 brethren. About 40 days that he uh, began to walk with them. Several times he would talk to them. And at the end of the Gospels and even the beginning of the book of Acts, you have the last words of Jesus. I need some people to help me. Uh, who, who brought your Bible and would mind reading a few things for me? R raise your hand if you got a Bible. I need, need some people. All right, Sister Barb, uh, Sister uh, Sorrels, uh, Dad, do you have your Bible? Would you? Okay, I need one more. Somebody has your Bible that would mind helping me read. All right, Brother uh, Justin Lowe. All right. Um, Sister Barb, I want you to find Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Uh, Dad, would you mind getting Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 18? Sister Sorrels, would you mind getting Luke chapter 24, verse 45 through 49? And then, uh, Brother Justin, would you get Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 8? It's hard for the, the way we're doing this, it's hard for, for Brother Andy to, to switch over. We can't really put the verses on the screen. It, it doesn't, very cumbersome the way we're having to do this. So that's why I'm asking you to read. I want you all to see how these all fit together because there is a lot of people that use Matthew 
chapter 28, 19 uh, in a wrong manner. And so I don't want to just use one. I want us to see how they all go together. So, uh, Sister Barb, would you read Matthew 28, 19 and 20? Read it loud. All right, so y'all heard that. But Buford, would you read Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 18? Awesome. Sister Sorrels, Luke chapter 24 and verse 45. My brother, uh, Justin, Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. Now, you have this in here, all right? But I want you to listen very carefully because I think it's very important. That great commission is recorded in each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's also recorded in the book of Acts. And in that, Jesus commanded the disciples. This is that great commission. Now, I would like to tell you that I saw this, and another pastor friend of mine posted on on Facebook, and I kind of tossed it aside to put in, in a file so I may preach it later but I think sometimes we focus on the go, the first go but it's really not go ye like go one time it really ought to be translated as you go the great commission is not a one time thing every day that I get up that's the great commission Every day that you slip your feet out of bed and and you get up, you ought to fulfill the Great Commission. It's not just a one-time thing, and it surely wasn't a one-time thing then. But let me tell you what it is. Jesus commanded the disciples to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
He also said they were to preach the gospel to everyone regardless of nationality and race. There's six elements of the Great Commission. I want you to listen. Number one, you got to believe. That's a key thing in the Bible. You can't have anything else if you don't believe in Jesus. Number two, repentance. Number three, water baptism. That's why we're still going to baptize people. Because the commission tells us to. Number four, the Holy Ghost with supernatural signs, including the speaking of other tongues. That's why I keep preaching that. Because it's part of the Great Commission. Number five, we keep teaching. And number six, we keep letting God heal. That's the elements of the Great Commission. Jesus led those disciples to the Mount of Olives and told them the way the Holy Ghost was going to come in a few days. He blesses them and then he goes to heaven. Those disciples look up and two men, angels, white apparel. Why are you standing here gazing? Why don't you go and wait? So they go to the upper room and we're going to talk about that next time or you know next week but let's go to the upper room wait because God is about to endue you with power from on high so that you would have the power to fulfill the great commission and let someone else be saved so that they can fill the, fulfill the great commission and it just keeps going and going and going now it, it's very hard for me to do this go to that next slide brother this slide is very important, and it's in your it's in your book, and, and, and it's in the the the, uh, um, the slides. And again, we can print those slides out. You can buy the, the the flip chart, or if you want them digitally, we can email you them digitally. But this is a really cool wheel, and I don't have time. It, it's it's too hard to do it because you can't read it that far. And this simply is talking about the mighty God in Christ. We're not talking about two people. We're not talking about three people. One of the most important questions ever asked was when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Some said he was a prophet. Yes, he is, but he's much more than that. All you got to do is start looking at Old Testament scriptures and letting them be fulfilled by the New Testament. And you will find, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he is God manifest in the flesh. The pivotal text, that pivotal text of the Old Testament to the Hebrews is Deuteronomy 6:4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The mystery of godliness is how that God was manifest in the flesh. That's why you hear me talk a lot about the humanity of Jesus, because as a man, Jesus hungered and slept. He was weary, he wept, he prayed. But as God, as divinity, he could feed the 5,000, he could heal the sick, he could raise the dead, he could walk on water, and he could answer prayer. And so when we're talking about Jesus, you have to realize he's God manifest in the flesh. I want us to stand today. Next week, we're going to get into the book of Acts talk about Acts chapter 2 verse 38 we're going to talk about repentance and water baptism and the Holy Ghost and the evidence of the Holy Ghost and the power of the Holy Ghost but we're standing today and this is the most important thing you'll ever do is to answer the question of Jesus 
Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now Jesus knows the answer. But much like parents do to the children, he's wanting you to answer that question. You have to examine your life right now. Lord, have I been baptized in the water? Now next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means, but let me just give you a, a, a little help. The Bible talks about being buried with Him in baptism, so that means if you were baptized, you needed to go all the way under the water because you have to be covered. The water is a representation of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we want the blood of Jesus Christ to cover us from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. So it's not enough just to be sprinkled. It's not enough just to have a ceremonial baptism. But you've got to be baptized because you know you're a sinner. That's why we don't baptize little babies. i got to wait till Zeke is old enough to look at me and say, Daddy, I've sinned and I've come short of the glory of God and I want the blood of Jesus to wash my sin away. When he finally tells me that, I'm going to be the happiest dad in the world because he's identified I've sinned and I need his blood to wash my sin away. So if you've never been baptized in the immersion, in the submerging of the water, now next week we'll, we'll tell you again, but just let me help you out. The Bible says that we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4. If you have never been born of the water, if you've never gone down in the water until it covered you and they said the name of Jesus over you, then you cannot fulfill what Jesus said. You've got to be born of the water. Then the second question is, have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? We read in the Great Commission, and we're going to see it a lot more uh, next week. But when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, people are going to know you receive the Holy Ghost. It's not just because you say you receive the Holy Ghost. It's not just because you signed a piece of paper. It's not just because you, 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 you know, said some magic words. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, something's going to take over. The Bible says out of your belly is going to flow rivers of living water. And I think there's a little bit more than just a, a, a symbolic statement. Because when I receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and everybody I've ever seen that received the gift of the Holy Ghost, when they begin to receive that Holy Ghost, they surrendered their life to Him. And when they did, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They couldn't make it up. They couldn't uh, 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 fake it. It was there, in fact, as you get into the book of Acts, which is where we see the Holy Ghost. Every time that we see someone filled with the Holy Ghost, you're going to find that there was some way that everyone around them knew that they had received the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you've never been born of the water, if you've never been born of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And, and I, I've preached this before, but let me remind you. God doesn't change the rules midstream, Brother Harvey. He's not going to say, well, this was only for, or for, for uh, 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 Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and John and Peter and Paul and Cornelius and, and the disciples of John the Baptist. It, it, but then now in 2017, I'm going to change the rules. You can do it this way. God doesn't operate like that. And so if it was good for them, it still works today. And the words of Jesus echo tonight. 
except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, Paul found some of John the, the Baptist's disciples. And he asked them, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They looked at him and they said, we don't even know about the Holy Ghost. What are you talking about? He said, well, how were you baptized? And they said, well, we were baptized under John's baptism. And Paul says, oh, well, let me tell you something. John's baptism was good, but he said there was going to come one after him that's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name, and you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And when they heard that, they gladly received it. And when they began to be filled with the Holy Ghost, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Are you saved? The Bible says to make your calling sure, to make your election sure, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt are you saved? And if you're here today and you ask that question and you say, I, I don't know, then you've not made your calling sure. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt right now. And I want you to answer that. I want us to just begin to sing. And I want you to just begin to close your eyes. And I want you to let the Lord speak to you right now. No.